Um, so, we're talking about covenant, and, uh, and it just so happens, as things go, that the passage in Malachi that we're talking about this today is about covenant marriage commitment. Isn't that interesting? So, um, the Bible talks a lot about agape love. There's different words for love in the New Testament Greek. You've probably heard me talk about this before. If you've been around for long at all. Four different words in the New Testament Greek for the word love. Right? There's um, eros, from which we get the word erotic, um, and, uh, and that's sexual, romantic kind of love. There's storge, which is like, um, I love pizza. I love wings. Mmm, making us hungry. There's philia, which is family kind of love, brotherly kind of love, friend kind of love. And then there is agape. And agape is covenant love. It's a love that makes a promise and keeps it. It's a love that sacrifices what I want so that I can lift you up. It is the kind of love that God has for us. It's the kind of love that, that, that God showed when He sent Christ for us. It's the kind of love that Christ showed when He hung on the cross for us. It's the kind of love that we are told in Scripture to have for one another. Agape love. And it's all founded in this idea that we've been talking about for now three weeks called covenant. So I, wanna, I want us to read our passage this morning. If you're following in Bibles or Bible apps, we're in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Malachi 2, 10 to 16. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah, it's not talking about a person, it's talking about a nation, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty, to Yahweh of heavenly armies, as we talked about the last couple weeks. Another thing you do, 
You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So verse 10 starts by saying, um, so why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? This brings to mind the, the connection of our commitment to God and our commitment to one another brings to mind what Jesus said were the first and second commandments, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. I don't believe we can separate those two commandments. They're two sides of the same coin. They're two parts of the same command. First John 4 verses 19 to 21 agrees with me. It says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. What John is saying here is, if we think we can love God and hate a human, then we don't understand love. We don't understand what agape is, what love is. We talk a uh, we often talk of, uh, and it, we said it this morning, we often talk of evangel um, being a family. We don't use that language flippantly. It's exactly what we are called to be. In Bible times, your, your household, it's an important Bible theology word, household. In the New Testament, it's oikos, very important word. Your household, your extended family unit was a covenant community in itself that lived to support and help and encourage one another towards blessing and peace and responsible contribution in the world. 
the family bore the name of the father or patriarch, and the household was a safe place. It was your place of protection and provision and your place where you as a family celebrated the the moments of life together. You always looked after family and you did your best to never let family down. And as people in the first century, sorry, I should have moved this. Um, As people in the first century were coming to Christ, they found themselves, oddly enough, because this was just unheard of, but as they were coming to Christ, they found themselves cut off from their families, their household, this place of safety, the place where they belonged, and they found their belonging, they found their identity, and they were cut off. And in that, in that moment, they began to realize that God was calling them to be a, a, a part of a new kind of family. The family that bore the name of Jesus. And we read the book of Acts, we see people who didn't see church as a meeting they attended, but as a family they belonged to. They were all in. And they pooled their resources as families would do. And they took care of anyone who had financial needs, relational needs. They would sell extra property and put the proceeds in the pot as well. And everyone was now connected in a new covenant community, and their bond was not a bond of family blood, but of the blood of Christ. And as a result, much of the New Testament is written to help people know how to live in this new covenant family, in this new society. How do we organize ourselves in a new family unit that we've never seen before? And in the New Testament, we actually have 59 one another commandments in the New Testament. 59 times in the New Testament, we're told certain ways of how to treat one another. The one another's. The one that's most often repeated, of course, is love one another. Because it summarizes and, and, and sums up all the other things that we do to care for one another and to be family to one another. Jesus gave us this instruction the night before he went to the cross for us. 
A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And we know how he loved us, right? By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Some of the other commands that we're given are to be at peace with one another, to forgive one another, to be devoted to one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, to build up one another, to pray for one another, to practice hospitality towards one another. And I really believe that God didn't, Jesus didn't come to start an institutional organization called the church. He didn't come to start a denomination. He came to start a new family and a new society that did life differently than the rest of the whole world because they did it in loving covenant commitment to one another to show what the family of God is like. Right? And so I want to... I, I, we have to move on to some other things this morning, some other aspects of this passage, but, but I just want, want us to get this, that I really believe when, when we're told in Malachi that, that by um, being unfaithful to one another, the ways that we let one another down in this family are ways that we break the covenant of our ancestors. That's what Malachi is saying. I believe that's, that's something we need to grab onto. We need to honor and cherish the covenant family that we have in Christ. Amen? And then, <clears throat> as the passage moves on, we move into... Uh, Malachi, God through Malachi, using metaphorical language that, that often gets used throughout the scriptures. The, the adultery of idolatry. The adultery of idolatry. God often through scriptures uses the metaphor of marriage to talk about his relationship with his people. Isaiah, here's, a, here's a, just a few examples. Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Jeremiah 3, verse 14. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Jeremiah 31, verse 32. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
I, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Depending on how you, how you interpret it, the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, is an entire book dedicated to the metaphor of God and His marriage relationship with His people. It's one of the meanings. I think there's layers of meaning there. The book of Hosea, my favorite example of this imagery. God takes Hosea and He says, Hosea, I want you to be an example to the nation. I want you to live out a drama before my people so they can see what their relationship with me is like. And he says, I want you to marry an unfaithful woman. Now, we're not sure if this woman was, was her name is Gomer. Great, great name for a woman, right? Very, very... Uh, Classy name, isn't it? But she, we don't know if she was, air quotes here, just someone who committed adultery. There's, there's a possibility that she was even a prostitute. We don't know. But she was unfaithful to Hosea. And, and, but, and there, she has three children we're not even sure if they're all his. We're, we're, there's some very intentional ambiguity in the text to suggest that at least two of them were probably not his children that were born during their marriage. And God says to Hosea, I want you to keep chasing her. Keep going after her. And, and she ends up at the, at, the, at the end of the story, in Hosea chapters 1 to 3, the, at the end of the story, she ends up so ravaged and destroyed, she is, by her, by her own lust and her own choices, that she's actually been put up on an auction block as a sex slave. And, and God says to Hosea, I want you to go and buy her back. And show her your love. Because that's what I do for my people. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. In the midst of our unfaithfulness, in the midst of our going our own way. So often we don't say what we sang earlier, your way is better. And we, we, we race off in our own way and we, our hearts get enamored with the things of the world. We begin to trust everything else except for God. But He keeps pursuing us because He's a covenant-keeping God. James 4, verses 4 and 5 says, 
you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely? The Spirit of God wants our hearts and is jealous for our affection and our attention. It's been suggested that from the very beginning, when God instituted marriage in the Garden of Eden, brought Adam and Eve together. It was intentional that God made Eve from Adam's body, from his... I I don't know what that looked like. I, I don't think that God, you know, took a rib and just stretched out a rib and made a woman out of it. I, I don't know. I, I, maybe he took the... the here's, here's, here's what I think. Here's what I think. The bone marrow in your rib has the, the most... The, the, the stem cells that are, that are most um, you know, useful for cloning and those kinds of things. And I don't know, but I think God somehow took the, the stem cells out of the rib and used it to make some kind of, you know, to, to make another human. I don't know how he did it. But, but he brought them together and it says that, that they became one flesh. And he says, therefore, from this time forward, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave, in in King James, or be united or be bonded to his wife. That word, bonded, is a covenant word. God didn't just bring people together and, and two people together and shack them up together, but he, he, he brought them into covenant bonded relationship for life together. We believe that marriage is one woman and one man together forever for life. That's what God intended. We know we're in a fallen, broken world, and that's not how everything plays out all the time, but that's God's plan and purpose for our lives, right? And it's been suggested that from the very beginning when marriage was given, that, that it, was a, it was meant to be a living metaphor of the covenant and spiritual intimacy that God desires to have with His people. One of the things that makes the marriage bond sacred is that it is, it is the, the, one of the ways that God means for us to image on earth the agape love that He has for His people. Marriage is sacred because it's a reflection of God's love when it's done well. (laughs) Right? 
And when it's done poorly and crumbles in a mess, it images the breakdown that happens when we abandon our covenant with God. Hosea, as we've talked about, has, was called to live this out in his own life. To display God's covenant love for his people. Now we want to move beyond the allegorical to real life for you and me. Pam says, "Uh uh-oh. So the passage here does this. It turns from talking in the allegory about Judah being unfaithful and then it moves into talking about actual real-life marriage, right? And God, God says that, that actual unf- unfaithfulness in the marriage covenant is a, is a problem. And, and, and I think God is telling us that, that marriage covenant is a really big deal, to him. Not just unfaithfulness sexually, but to disregard and dishonor the vows and the promises that we make to one another. Um, is is a is a big deal, and it doesn't just affect us as an individual or even just as a couple. It affects the people around us, it affects our families, it affects the way that we image God in the world, right? The person here in this passage begins to ask why their prayers are not being answered. God says it's because He Himself is the witness between couples between married people, as to how they're keeping their their vows. And because they had been unfaithful in keeping their vows, they were reaping the consequences in God not answering their prayers. God takes our promises very seriously. The same concept we find in 1 Peter 3 verse 7, it says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? But the way that we treat one another in our marriage vow relationship actually affects how God hears our prayers. <clears throat> and I believe that, uh, you know, this, this, this call to faithfulness that we hear in, in the Peter passage, the call to faithfulness that we see in Malachi here, Um, it applies to the husband and the wife. 
But the language in this cultural container um, that we're reading uh, is pointed at the husband. Not only in this culture in which the Bible was written did, did husbands have all of the power legally in the marriage relationship. Um, but I think that also there, even today, is a calling on husbands to set the pace and lead their family by cherishing and taking care of their wife. She is your queen. And men, we have a tendency to allow our jobs, our hobbies, and all the other things that, that in our lives to become mistresses to take our attention away from cherishing our wives. The care for her soul was given to you by God as the leader of your home. And leader doesn't mean boss. It doesn't mean you get to make all the rules and all the decisions and call all the shots. It means you have, here's what leadership means. As leaders in the kingdom, like Jesus we have less rights and more responsibilities. That's what leadership is in the kingdom. Jesus laid down all of his rights and took on him the responsibility of laying down his life for us. That's leadership in the kingdom. I have less rights than anyone else in this room. <laughs> well, that's part of it too. But I'm saying as pastor, lead pastor of the church here, I have less rights. I can get away with less than anyone else in this room can get away with. And I understand that. That's part of the calling. I have a responsibility to serve you, to encourage you, to help you, to lift you up. And leadership in the home is no different. The passage says, She is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. She is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. I think there's two things that Malachi, that God through Malachi is reminding us of here. She is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. First of all, um, she is not your slave or employee or property, but your partner. That's an important word. Can you imagine in this ancient culture, 2,500 years ago, how it sounded to say your wife is your partner? revolutionary. Don't ever tell me that the Bible oppresses and pushes down women 
at every turn, the Bible elevates the status and value of women. She's your partner. She's equal with you in the calling God has for you to live in this world as representatives of Christ. She's a partner with you in in the calling to shape your home and your family according to the principles of God's Word. She's a partner in all of the major decisions of your family, your finances, your children, your property, your family vacations. If a couple does not live as one flesh, they cannot hope to have unity and peace in the home. God has given you as a couple a one flesh calling. You each, as individuals, bring a uniqueness to the world and you have gifts and abilities that God has put in your life for you to steward and use for His glory. But you also have as a couple a together calling, something that you bring to the world together, something God wants to use through you because you are together, you are one flesh. And the second thing, when he says she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, that God is reminding the couple of their of their marriage vows, of their marriage covenant to one another. There are days when it is just the fact that you have made a vow to one another before God that you stay together. (laughs) Hopefully, there aren't too many of those days. But there are those days for every couple. There are days you feel married. You're glad you're married. You still remember exactly why you married the person that you did. And then there are days that if you hadn't made a promise, it would be really easy to walk away. And in those moments when you choose to stay and be committed to your vow in the midst of pain and frustration and disappointment, that you are most beautifully demonstrating the faithful, covenant-keeping, agape love of God. Verse 15 in our passage. Verse 15, the NIV does not do a good job with, uh, with verse 15. It's out of step with most of the other English translations. And so I want to go with the English Standard Version with, uh, with verse 15. And it says this, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? We're, we're busy. Um, isn't, isn't that beautiful? Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? That when two couples come together and make a promise and a vow to one another before God, that God gives a 
a measure of his spirit to enable and empower them to be bonded together. Wow. And so, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God is seeking godly offspring. He wants his family to reflect him well. Therefore, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Guard your mind, guard your actions, guard your words, guard your thoughts. Unfaithfulness does not begin with a sexual act. It begins by letting down your guard. Guard your eyes and your mind. Job 31 verse 1 says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Job guarded his eyes and his mind to protect him from being unfaithful to his covenant to his wife. There are times when we need to avert our eyes. We need to look away. There are times when we need to tell a brother or sister that we're having difficulty with our thoughts so they can encourage us and pray for us and help us to stay accountable. And if we're serious about guarding our covenant promise, we need to fight for that and put things in place to protect our thoughts. For others, the thoughts may not be so much physical lust as relational thoughts or fantasies. Imagining how someone else might pay a little more attention to me than my spouse. Might look after my needs better. Might cherish me better. Allowing our mind to go there. It's, it's normal and it's human to have those thoughts, to have sexual thoughts. It's, don't take on shame because you're having a thought, but it's what we do with the thought that matters. Because what the devil wants to do is say, see, look what you're thinking. You're no good, and just heap shame on you until you just go down that shame hole and end up in a place in your mind that you never needed to go if you captured it right away. Right? It's our job, responsibility, to take our thoughts captive and bring them into obedience to Christ. I'm not saying it's easy, but the battle is already won for us. Romans 6, 11 says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
time is getting away. Wow. Just looked at the clock and, whoo. <clears throat> okay, we'll keep moving. Need to be aware of our own souls. It's part of our guarding ourselves. Be aware of our own souls. Our craving for attention that comes from the unhealed parts of our hearts. Our vulnerability that comes from not having our hearts filled in appropriate ways from God and our spouse if we're married. You can be sure that the enemy knows your patterns of failure and where you are weak. You would be wise to be aware of them yourself and guard your heart. To seek healing where it's needed. Look after, cultivate the garden of your own heart. And let me say, your spouse needs you to be the one that notices them first and notices them most. Give them your attention. Give them your affection. Give them your heart. They need you to be the one that pays attention to their emotional care. Who defends them. And then verse 16 says, The man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. The man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. Some translations say, God says, I hate divorce. It's not the best translation of that, uh, of what's there. It's a little unclear in the Hebrew. However, the principle is there. God does hate divorce. We need to be very careful that we don't make the scripture say God hates divorcees. It's not what this passage says at all. But God hates the brokenness that is ravaged, that, that lives are ravaged by when relational brokenness comes into a marriage, into a church, into a family. God hates the breakdown of covenant relationship. <laughs> our covenant relationships, our marriages, our covenant family of Christ, Our marriages can either be the most life-giving relationships in our lives or the most life-sucking relationships in our lives. Again, sometimes it depends on the day, right? But if we invest in our relationship and we work on the difficult stuff 
and we have challenging conversations and we push through to a place of emotional intimacy, then our marriages can be a source of joy and life and peace instead of a source of frustration and anxiety. This is true of all of our covenant relationships. And it's true of our relationship with Jesus. Amen. I do think we're I do think we're going to push through for just a few more minutes and celebrate communion together. If you have to go, we understand. But I just think that we've I think it's just so appropriate. As we talk about the agape covenant keeping love of God in Christ and how it is displayed in our human relationships, I just think it's such a setup for celebrating together around the, the family of the table of the Lord. So I'm gonna quickly get uh, those of you worship team, come on up. Those who are serving communion, if you can uh, find your way. And let's do this. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord. God even loves long-winded preachers. Amen. So I just want to say before we, we hand out these elements, if you're joining us for the first time for communion today, um, if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you are welcome at our table. There's no, uh, there's no real restrictions other than that. We welcome you to the table of the Lord. Uh, as you receive the, the trays, there are two cups, one inside the other. The bottom cup has a little wafer in it. The top has the juice. Separate the cups and, uh, and hold on to them. We'll, we'll take the elements all together after they've been distributed. Okay, let's worship with the team. Cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled.
God, we're so thankful. For all that you've done for us on the cross. The life that we have available to us and the hope we have available to us because of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So God, we, uh, today we, we celebrate the fact that my sin, my failure, my brokenness was placed upon your body on that cross. That you bore it to death. You carried it into the grave. That the power of sin would be broken over my life. Thank you for the freedom that you have won. We can walk by the Spirit and not be bound by the flesh because of what you have won. Let's take the emblem of Jesus' broken body. In the same way, after supper, Paul says, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus, we recognize today that because your blood was shed, was spilt on that cross, was poured out for us, you purchased life and freedom. You cleansed us from sin and you reconciled us to the Father. We give you thanks and praise that you paid the ultimate ransom to rescue us from the power of sin. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Let's take the element the emblem of his blood. Thank you, Lord. Let's stand and give him thanks and praise. Hallelujah. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forever.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your agape love, your covenant-keeping love. Thank you that you pursue us when we go down wrong turns, back alleys, that you never give up on us. Thank you for your faithful love, oh God. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Uh, We have prayer meeting tonight at 6. We'd love to see you. Uh, If you have a need this morning, our team is ready to to pray with you. Uh, We'd love to to pray for you, believe for healing, believe for healing of a relationship. Um, Come on up. God bless the rest of you that need to go. God bless your day.